made possible by Real Ale Brewing and the 8020 Foundation. So let's go. Y'all ready for the second half? Say, oh yeah. One more time, oh yeah. Thank you so much. All the amen corners, find your people. This next storyteller is Emily Sanchez. Yeah, some of y'all know her. All right. Emily is here to tell her story about how a horse has intuition. Please welcome to the stage, Emily Sanchez. I promise I'm not using the uh, imagine everybody in their underwear or naked trick. I promise I'm not doing that. Oh, sad. I know. I mean, I can. Maybe not. It all started with a horse. A horse that would unexpectedly change my life. Not like anything Mr. Ed-like, but pretty close to it. So my parents had planned this lovely vacation to New Mexico, and we were to go horseback riding. <laughs> and that's my mom chuckling in the back. <laughs> She's already like, mm -hmm, I know this story. <laughs> we had planned to go to New Mexico for this horseback riding. And we go, and it's scenic and lovely and beautiful. And I was so excited because I was on my two-week break from teaching. I was an elementary school teacher, fifth grade. I know. <laughs> it's, it wasn't that cute. Um, so I was on break, and I was really excited. And I was like, yay, horses, love them. Haven't done it since Brack, it's fine. Um, so we go horseback riding, I get on my horse, 600 pounds under me, and the guy is like, you're stressing my horse out. <laughs> Sorry. I didn't realize horses are that in tune with you, but apparently they are. So the horse is like doing this like backtrack thing, and I'm like, I don't know what your horse is doing, man. He's like, you're stressing it out. And so it's like, oh, I don't know how to be calm. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. It's huge. Um, long story short, our horseback riding got canceled. It was super cute, I know. Um, what had happened was apparently there was a storm blowing in, and so all of the horses, all four of our horses, there was four of us, all four of our horses were not having it. But mind you, mine had been the most stressed out. We just want to point that out. I was stressing out the horses. So we cancel it, it's fine. Um, we come home. And I'm already like, oh, I have to go back to work. Two weeks is truly just not enough for anybody, let alone a teacher. Like, if you've parented before, <laughs> it's worse. <laughs> um, so I show up to work Monday, and I'm like, I'm going to be excited. I'm going to see my kids, and I'm going to teach a lot of stuff I don't really know. It's fine. And I used to have this ritual where I would, like, go into the room, and I'm like, I'm gonna get to work at 6.30, cause nobody's there except for the creepy janitor that likes to look at me. And I'm gonna stake a claim at the printer, and I'm gonna be in my room, and like maybe, you know, say hi to my supplies, like that whole thing, right? It just helped me de-stress before 22, 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds going on 30 would walk in. And I heard an ew, it really wasn't that bad. Um, so I would get there, so Monday I'm there, and I'm like, oh my god, we're starting the next semester, and if you know, in Texas, we do state testing. Cute, yeah, I know. Um, so the second semester for fifth graders is really big. Lots of stressful things happening for them. Their bodies and all that, whatever. 
So I was not really excited, but I was like pretending to be excited because when you pretend, maybe the rest of you will follow suit. I don't know. Um, and then it's like 15 till the bell and I start crying and I don't know why. And I'm like, I don't know what's happening. Um, so I just cry it out a little bit and I call my mom as one millennial does, calls for mommy. And I'm like, I have no idea why I'm crying. Like, I like I'm, I want to be here. I want to see my kids. Da, da, da. And she's like, it's fine. It's probably because, you know, we were just on our trip. It had been snowing the whole time on the way home. And it was like super stressful. I mean, I missed it because I was asleep, but I heard it was super stressful. <laughs> and you'll be fine. Like, just get through today. Mondays are usually rough, especially for the kids. I'm like, OK, it's fine. So I do what any sensible teacher does when they're upset. I went home that evening and I wrote a resignation letter. <laughs> But I, I, I had no intention of like submitting it. I was just like, I'm just so upset. I'm just gonna type this. It's gonna make me feel so much better. <laughs> Watch. Okay, it's in my Google Docs, whatever. Tuesday comes and the same exact thing happens. I'm like one with the room and then the next I'm like crying to my mom. And I can't figure out why until I think back to that horse that was apparently stressed out by me. And I'm like, wait a minute. I think I'm super stressed and I don't, want to be doing this anymore and I can't do it anymore because I'm literally crying before work and I've got a bunch of 10 year olds being like your makeup looks different <laughs> it's not the makeup it's the pain and tears yeah and sadness and I was like what am I doing like I'm crying in a portable not even a classroom let me just point that out in a portable ew I know not even cute I'm not even in a classroom I'm in a portable it has wheels and like cement blocks holding it up that I have to tell my kid, like, stop poking the bee's nest that's coming through the top. Oh it's true story, I swear. <laughs> and that Tuesday, I called a meeting, and I'm like, hey, principal, here's my letter. That same Tuesday. And you know what she didn't do? She didn't ask me why. She just took it. I know. <laughs> and even more so, she didn't ask me to stay. She didn't try to get me to stay. And we're talking, like, second day back from winter break and she's like okay and right away she's like talking logistics like okay I got to get this in order and this in order I'm thinking like that's funny like I thought she'd be like please stay you're my best one I don't know maybe I was expecting too much so as soon as word got around that I was not going to be teaching there anymore I had a lot of people coming up to me being like oh my god congrats congrats I so wish I could be doing what you're doing right now and I'm like unemployment like, I'm about to lose my insurance, bro. I'm not 26 anymore. I can't be on mommy and daddy's. <laughs> so it's so strange to me. Like, why are people congratulating me? Why aren't people like, why are you leaving or whatever? Like, nobody. I mean, at one point, I got a slow clap. I had rounded the corner to go to lunch, and one of my coworkers was like, <laughs> Emily, you're so good. Thank you, I don't know who you are. <laughs> but thank you. A lot of times too, they would be like, so what are you doing next? What's next for you? I don't know, I just, I really wish my two weeks was up already. <laughs> That's all I could think. Two weeks, two weeks, two weeks. Let me frame this for you. If you know anything about teaching, it's like really stressful. And we're very undervalued and underpaid and Hardly ever listened to, really. So, yeah, just wasn't for me.
It really wasn't. And in my short-lived two and a half years, I did accomplish a lot. I racked up over 10,000 in medical bills. I know, so cute. Um, but beyond that, it just, like, it's not fun to be stressed out all the time. It's really not, it's not worth it. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love the kids, I do. But it just was not worth it anymore. And I have no idea what's next for education or teachers or students or COVID this or COVID that or whatever. Like, I don't even get paid enough to even think of that. I mean, I don't get paid at all because I'm unemployed. But <laughs> beside that, like, I don't, I don't know. I have no idea. But for me, I had to just remove myself and be like, I've got to find something way better that's going to make me happy every single day and not crying, crying in the club. No, crying in my portable and wishing I had any other job but to teach. So I don't know, but if you have teacher friends, reach out to them. It's really important. Thank you. Our next storyteller is Raul Sanchez. Raul is here to tell his story about a palm grove that just wasn't worth the time. Please welcome Raul Sanchez. Uh, thank you, everybody. Uh, my name is Raul Sanchez, and I am a citizen of the United States of America. Uh, of course, and always, it wasn't always that way. Uh, I was actually born in Mexico, uh, so tonight I want to tell you the story of how I got my citizenship. Uh, sometime in 1991, my mother decided that, all right, we're all going to the United States. You know, my dad was already here. She's got me and my little sister. We go to the border. We get uh, uh, in line at the bridge, and right before we're about to get to where the judge guy is that uh, deals with everybody, uh, she tells us her big plan to get us across uh, illegally. Apparently, she learned how to say the phrase United States citizen really well, and she used to go back and forth at leisure by herself when she was younger. And her plan was that while we were going to go up there, she was going to get in front of the judge and kind of like screen us a little bit, like United States citizen, while behind her, we were supposed to just kind of like tiptoe, like walk behind her, we got caught immediately. Like she didn't even get the sentence, she's like, United States, whose kids are those? And immediately we got kicked out of there, right? And we got kicked back across uh, the border and we tried it again, but this time she went by herself and did her whole like Jedi thing. Like, oh, you know, and got through and we got taken uh, across by, um, by relatives that had green cards. They just, we drove in a car, we got to the bridge, and they were like, are those your kids? And he was like, yeah, those are our kids, they're brown, aren't they? You know? and, just, and the guy was like, yeah, that checks out, right? And he just let us through. <coughs> and we got to the United States! And even as a kid, I knew even back then, I was like, we've made it. We finally made it to the land of opportunity, you know? Like, our lives are gonna be changed forever. We're, uh, our lives are gonna be better from now on, right? So 10 years later, 
I'm crawling on the floor under the hot Georgia sun, and there's a drill sergeant standing over me, yelling at me and this other guy, going like, you two move like pond water. You are going to get killed when you go to Afghanistan next year. Right? And I'm just like crawling like, ah, say it, don't spray it, right? Just kind of like, ah. We go to Afghanistan, and it was the hardest thing that I've ever been through, like physically. You know, like we had to clear these villages, there were like some of them were on the side of a mountain. We had to go up and down them. And sometimes I would be going through these villages, clearing them. And I would see these little kids run out of these tiny little houses and like run barefooted on, on these uh, dirt roads. And I remember thinking while I was seeing them, because they were little brown skinny boys with like long black hair. And I would just I would think like that that was me. Like that was me when I was in Mexico. I used to run on a a dirt road barefooted too and it's weird that just the dumb luck of not even being born in the United States just being born right next to it that got us the opportunity for a better life and I would think man that kid like he's on the other side of the world he's never gonna get the opportunity that I got to better my life you know, so anyway, two years later, I'm in Iraq in a firefight in the middle of a palm grove, and I'm just like, pow, 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 pow. and right next to me, the, my machine gunner is going off on the on the 249, and it 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 just it it, it jams on him. It's like, Sergeant Sanchez, I got a jam on the saw, and I'm like, well, fucking fix it, and I keep shooting, <laughs> boom, 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 and then I see him still struggling with him, I'm like, so I start crawling over to him, right. And just like the move like pond water, right? And I'm moving over to him. <laughs> and right before I get my hands on him, be like, what's wrong? I go like this, and I guess he fixed it. Like, oh, right the side of my ear. Legend has it till this day, I can't hear very well out of my right ear. And as soon as like he got it back going up, I just roll over and I just start shooting back in his direction. My sergeant comes over, Sergeant Lynn. He's like, we got to get out of here. Sergeant Sanchez, get your guys out of here. The birds are inbound. They're about to light the whole fucking palm grove. We got to get out of here. And we're like, oh, my God. We run out of there. The birds never come, right? So the we have to go back in there. The firefight keeps going. We end up getting a guy shot, right? And we got to get him out of there. And we get Pfeiffer out of there. And he's just like, he's bleeding like you can see this blood in his mouth because he got shot in the chest right above the the breastplate, and we're pulling him out and we put him on this this back of this bongo truck. It was like they're they're like little Ford Ranger version that they have over there, and we put him on this thing and he's just ble he's bleeding and he just laying down and he just keeps like stomping his leg like that like and everybody keeps telling him like stay up stay up man like like what what year is it you know uh, what's your parents name and then and he wouldn't answer into any of that and at some point somebody said who's the president of the United States and i just remember him just going like this he goes who gives a fuck <laughs> right and i just remember thinking at that moment like yeah who gives a fuck about what's happening right now and I remember we just sending him off he goes on the truck and later I remember finding out that he didn't make it he died on the actual bird and then I got out in 2006 and I remember the government passed this law where they said that if you had been in in the army and you were not a citizen you could get fast-tracked 
into being a citizen, just go to the VA, tell them your stuff, and it's on the government's dime. And I did the whole thing. Next thing you know, I'm in an auditorium. I'm swearing to protect the United States again. <laughs> and yeah, and I got my citizenship. And afterwards, that didn't really make me uh, feel like a citizen. It wasn't until after it was over that my mom said, where do you want to go now? And I said, uh, I want to go home. And that's how I became a citizen. Um, thank you guys so much. That's my time. So, our last storyteller is George Anthony. George is here to tell their story about how some family bonding makes you stronger than others. Let's all welcome our last storyteller, George Anthony. Hi, I'm George. Okay, calm down. Thank you. Thank you for that. <clears throat> I gotta stop wearing it. Everybody's telling me. Anyway, this is my story about my family. Family's like everything, right? And um, I don't know how you grew up, but I grew up very aggressive. I have a very aggressive family. <sighs> like, we've all gotten into fights with our family, right? And don't misunderstand me. I mean, like a fight with your family, like your whole family fights another family. You guys. <laughs> the first fight that we got into, it was back in the late 1900s. It's how long ago this was. It was at the movies. You guys remember the movies? Remember that dumb shit? Yeah? Hey, let's go see a bigger TV, right? <laughs> so the movie that was playing, just a little backstory. The movie that was playing was Lost in Space, right? It was 1998. Matt LeBlanc was at the height of Friends, right? And Matt LeBlanc, Joey from Friends, was uh, starting to do features. And so they approached uh, Matt, uh, Joey, and they're like, hey, Matt, you wanna do a shitty movie about space? And he was like, I don't know, it has to be the worst. They're like, it's gonna suck, let's do it. So my dad found out about it. He's a huge Lost in Space uh, fan from back in the day, but the old black and white episodes, you know? So he was excited, and so he took me, I'm 12, and my brother was 11, and my sister was 10, and my mom, she's like a little bit older than us, you know? <laughs> and we all go out to the movies. And so, back then, you had to show up early if you wanted good seats, you know? It's not like now where you can reserve seats and kick some old lady out of your seat, you know? You can't do that anymore. 84. So we show up and we're like notoriously late as a family, right? So we show up kind of late and the movie theater is packed. There was nothing to do in the late 1900s. There was no Facebook. There was no Netflix, no Hulu. The movies, the theaters is where it was at, right? 
so we show up and we're kind of late and it's packed like wall-to-wall people and there's of course those seats up front the break your neck seats up front and then some seats way in the back right so my father does this real slick move he's like hey y'all sit up here y'all act right i'm gonna make out with your mom up there all right and so we sit down and the lights go down and the previews go up and that's when the first incident happened there were some teenagers that were sitting behind us and they were just causing like a ruckus, whatever, right? And they start throwing food over the seats. Some of the food hit my sister in the back of the head. Now, mind you, she's 10 years old, so she's a little over dramatic. So when she got hit with the food, to her, it was like the Kennedy assassination. <laughs> it was like back into the left or whatever, you know? And so she gets up and she starts, she's, she's brave. She's brave before the hashtag. She was brave. Mind you, this is the late 1900s. <laughs> Apple did not exist in phone territory. So my sister goes, hey, you jerk, don't be throwing food at me. And then this voice rang out from where the teenagers at, from the darkness, and the voice goes, man, shut up, you little hoe. Which is really messed up to talk to a 10-year-old like that, <laughs> especially in public. But. To whoever's credit that was, they, they nailed it. They must have been a fortune teller. Anyway, um, and don't get me wrong, I love my sister to death, but I also know who she is. So anyway, my brother hops up, right? He's like, hey, I'm talking to my sister like that. I'm going to beat you up after this movie with Matt LeBlanc, right? So we watch the rest of this awful movie. And it finally finishes, and in the chaos of everybody leaving, right, my brother weaves through the traffic, and he finds these teenagers. Now, we don't know if these are the correct teenagers to this day. <laughs> they were just the first kids we approached <laughs> and questioned. <laughs> and so my brother goes up to the biggest kid he could find, Jesus, you know? This big corn-fed 16-year-old kid. And he goes up, was that you talking mess to my sister? And this kid, you know, respect him. He didn't say nothing. He just punched my brother right in the face. <laughs> my brother goes flying back. I'm the oldest. I got to represent for the family, right? So I was like, Mom! I just started yelling for my parents. It was to no avail, though, right? They're lost in the crowd. So I jump in the fight. I started trying to fight this kid. We were getting beat up, dude. Like, he... Picked me up by my shirt, started beating me in the face. My brother hops up, and my brother's punching him while he's punching me. Then that kid's friends saw us beating up there. Then they jump in. Now me and my brother are getting bounced around the sea of teenage angst, you know? Thank God my mother and my sister saw us because they ran over immediately and just started hitting people who were walking by. <laughs> to be fair, they knew who was on our team. They didn't know who was on their team, you know? Uh, like, I know what you're thinking. They're like, man, where is this guy's dad at? I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> and I started a call for him. I'm like, where's dad? Right? And I look over and I see my father. He's a very large man. Big, big, dumb animal. I love him to death, you know. But I see his big head <laughs> floating above everybody else. And he's at the concession stand <laughs> getting food for the ride home. Like... And so I yell, Dad, right? And he goes, oh, hey, make that to go. And he runs, 
over to us. And my dad, again, he's just a big, a big man, dude. Big, huge banana hands, just huge guy. And he starts, like, mowing the crowd down, trying to get to us, like, pulling people out of their clothes, you know? And he gets to where my brother's at, right? And my brother's being held down at this point uh, by this older white gentleman, you know? And just for the story, we'll say he's racist. And so... <laughs> This old white man is holding down my brother as they hold down society. Nah, that's too much. So, my, my dad grabs this, this man holding my brother, right? But when he grabs him, he, he, he grabs his head. That's the first thing I guess he thought. Like, he grabbed a human head. He palmed a human, and I'm, I'm, I'm not, this is where the joke stops, right? He picks up this guy by his head, holding my brother, mind you. He's like, let go of my son! And to see this guy's face drain of reality, it was, it was upset, and it haunts me to this day. Because just imagine, you're just like, whoa! Like, and his feet were dangling, you know? Like, his feet were smart. His feet were like, yo, let's get out of here, bro! But his body was like, I'm staying with the head on some ride or die shit, you know? My dad wiggles my brother free as my dad's about to blast this guy into the next life. This guy just starts confessing, which is exactly what I would have started doing. This guy's just like, sir, I'm a volunteer firefighter. I was just trying to break it up. My dad's like, oh, great. He throws him across the way and was like, hey, keep that up. That's good work you do, I guess. And so now my whole family is fighting a whole movie theater at this point. And again, I know what you're thinking. This wasn't at night. This was the 2 o'clock matinee. <laughs> Murder and mayhem ensuing, it was, it was the best quality time I've ever spent with my family. But like everything good in life, uh, it had to come to an end because of uh, security. And I, or somebody, some, you know those people that just are non-violent but they want to get into it anyway and they just yell, run, it's the cops, you know, and you have to believe them because you can't afford to get arrested, you can't afford your whole family to get arrested, you know? And so someone said that, and we were like, you better be telling the truth, right? And we started running away as a family. You ever run away from justice with your whole family? You ever do that? You ever, you ever escape jail time with your mom, you know? And, they, and then hear your mom say, I ain't going back, and then she runs. <laughs> Thank y'all so much. <laughs>